Well, we pick up the story of 1 Samuel this morning in chapter 2, verse 11, just after that magnificent and prophetic prayer of Hannah, which we looked at last week. We're going to make the three points that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Corruption, judgment, and hope. To corruption, it should say verses 12 through 17 and 22 through 25. Corruption, judgment, and hope. So first corruption, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. The sons of Eli were wicked men or scoundrels, worthless men. Means that they had no regard for the Lord. They had no living knowledge of God's majesty. No sense of His holiness. For them, God was, as I mentioned last week, a weightless being. Remember now, Hannah had prophesied that the proud and the arrogant, that the full, the self-satisfied mighty ones, they would be broken and cast down. And we expect, naturally perhaps, that that would be the political military enemies of Israel. The Canaanites, or perhaps the Philistines. But it turns out that the corruption, the rot, is in the church, in the priesthood. In one sense, the 20th century is a century of corruption and rot in the church. As church after church after church abandons the authority of Scripture and the clarity of the gospel. And as it does so, finds itself emptied out. Right? There's a mainline Presbyterian denomination that had four million people in it a generation or two ago. It has under a million today. The corruption is inside the walls. And it's in Eli, the high priest's sons. Now remember, this is the ministry. This is the church into whose hands Hannah gave up her child. So verse 11 documents that the family goes home to Ramah and the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. So she cuts the maternal bond with her child and transfers her parental responsibility for the child to Eli, who is, let's just say, a less than promising father, whose sons were scoundrels, the text says. He already has a track record with sons. It's interesting, right? Hannah has no option here. You cannot give oneself up to the Lord without giving oneself up to the church of the Lord. Right? Dealing with the Lord, being consecrated unto the Lord, devotion to the Lord is also always, everywhere, engagement with the mess of brokenness that is us, the people of the Lord. Hannah has no option of saying, Oh Lord, I consecrate my son Samuel to you and to your worship, but not to this corrupt church. 
And so we have something of a tale of two households developing in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Eli and his sons, Hannah and her son Samuel. And we get this rather longish account of Eli's son's corruption. The main abuses are clear. These priests are presiding over a system of the exploitation of the worshipers that they were called to serve. Right? They, the text says they're, they're taking beyond their legitimate portion. Right? The law provided portions of meat and grain offerings for the priests to eat. But they're taking beyond their legitimate portions. The text says they would plunge a, a three-pronged fork into the pot and whatever it brought up, they would take. Now, if that's not the origin of the word potluck, I mean, it really should be. It really should be the origin. Moreover, they would take raw meat with the fat on it, and as you heard in the reading, they would take it by force if necessary. And the fat was to be removed and offered to God. The fat was uniquely the Lord's portion. The book of Leviticus calls the fat God's bread. They're taking food out of the mouths of the people and out of, out of the service of God. And the text tells us this sin was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating his offering with contempt. That's only one half of the corruption. Eli, who is now, we're told, very old, heard all about what his sons did, which mean, it means it was known far and wide. This is not being done in a corner. And in addition to this liturgical abuse, the abuse of the sacrificial system, there was moral evil. They slept with the women, the text says, who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Eli rebukes them, but to no avail. Now, these are not young sons. You had to be 30 years old to serve as a priest. And Eli, their father, is very old. So these are men probably well past 30. Now, whether Eli was an indulgent father to them in their early years, it's hard to say. But his words to them here are very vague. And they're ineffective. He makes one good point in his little speech to his sons. He says, God may mediate a dispute between two Human offenders, presumably through a judge or a sacrifice or a priest. But he says to his sons, what are you going to do when you're sinning directly against the Lord? When you are sinning against the sacrifices themselves, which are meant to provide atonement for your sins. Right? The sins of these sons is not just a sort of minor error in the performance of the liturgy. It is what the book of Hebrews calls trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. It is a grave situation. They are despising the very sacrificial means God has provided for their cleansing. And then we get this stark notice in the text. The sons did not listen to their father, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. They had reached a point in their rejection. 
right, in their persistent rebellion, in their defiling of the holy things, that, and you see this in Romans chapter 1, God gives them over. God confirms them in their hardness. As with Pharaoh, right, it's the same situation. Having his heart hardened and hardening his own heart. God's sovereignty and human responsibility stand side by side. They do not compete with each other. Right? God willed to put them to death. The sons chose death repeatedly over a long period of time. It's important for us to get this right. God takes no delight, the scriptures tell us, in the death of the wicked. But he does delight in justice. And he will jealously guard the integrity of his worship. If you want to corrupt the gospel in your denomination, you can expect it to be emptied out. This is a dangerous God. He's a consuming fire. His worship will not be mocked or profaned. He will see to it. That's the corruption, and it's inside the church. And that moves in response to the second point, which is judgment. Verse 27. Verse 27. The priestly house of Eli is confronted by a prophet. He's just simply called, we don't know who this person is. He's just called a man of God. Out of nowhere, the word of God intervenes in the situation. This, beloved, is always our hope in the midst of decline and corruption. God lives, and God is the eloquent God, and God speaks. So we're in the middle of this narrative of complete corruption in the priesthood and in the church and some unnamed man of God starts to speak. This is what gives the church hope for the future. And then the Lord, through this prophet, rehearses his goodness and his faithfulness. He revealed himself to Eli's ancestors, chose them to be priests. They had these grand privileges. They offered sacrifices, he says, and they burned incense and they, they, bore, they wore an ephod, the, the breastplate in the book of Exodus. They ministered to the Lord. They made atonement. They interceded for the people. There was no higher calling in Israel than to be one of these priests. But they have come in Eli's generation to despise their heritage. You know... I often think it may be that the ministry is despised in our culture because the ministry degraded itself first. Either turning, turning the ministry into some sort of entertainment or some sort of amusement or some sort of chatty moralism or some sort of running political commentary and forgetting the dignity and the honor and the height to which God calls the church and its ministers. So in verse 29, the man of God says, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Again, they're scorning the very thing which is ordained for their cleansing. 
Don't scorn the assembly of the people of God on the Lord's day. It is the means of your cleansing and renewal. It is the place to struggle with your doubts and your perplexity. Right? It is the place it is precisely the place to come in weakness and yet our tendency is to scorn it when we're struggling and weak. So in the text, the you, why do you scorn is plural. It includes Eli and his sons. So the father is complicit in the son's evil. And we see next, now here, the knife goes in very deep. Why do you, the man of God asks, here the you is singular. It refers to Eli himself. Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves. I mean, Eli literally gets fat and dies later in the narrative, right? By falling over backwards on a chair and breaking his neck. Why do you fatten yourself on the choicest parts of the offerings made by my people? This is the heart of the tragedy of Eli, who, we should note, appears to be a decent man in many other ways. But this is a fatal flaw that he has. And it's not about fathers disciplining young sons in general. These are full-grown, pushing, middle-aged men, Eli's sons. There may be nothing he could have done with words. But clearly get this. He could have and he should have. Right? God's honor demanded it. He should have removed them from office. Right? That's, what the, that's what the man of God's concerned about. He was the chief priest. His sons may have been scoundrels, but he should not have allowed them to be priestly scoundrels. That he could have done easily. He should have changed the situation. He should have guarded the worship of the living God. And for him, and this is a great temptation to parents, right? For Eli, blood was thicker than the covenant. He put his family above God. But it is not. The covenant is thicker than blood. And to get this backwards in a family is to violate the first commandment. The family itself is one of history's great idols. This is idolatry to honor one's sons more than God. And so Eli is guilty here of a lack of courage of a kind of gutless compassion, which in order not to offend his sons, to spare their feelings, despises God's holy worship. And so this sentence, grim sentence is pronounced. Right, His family was destined to hold the priesthood forever and the privilege is now revoked. Those who honor me, the Lord says, I will honor. Those who despise me will be disdained. And then the prophet pronounces a curse on Eli's house. Judgment begins, as it always does, at the house of God. At the house of God. That's why we read the passage from Peter as the companion text with this as the New Testament reading. Good will be done to Israel, but Eli's line is going to be cut off. 
Not totally, it's going to be decimated. It's a very devastating word to read. No one in your line is going to reach old age. All your descendants will die in the prime of life. You know, sometimes it takes a long time to see this. It can take generations. But if you honor your family above God, your family pays a high price. Right? What you coddle and what you cherish, you often lose. And in this case, Hophni and Phineas, Eli's two sons, they're going to both, as a sign of this prophecy, they're going to both die on the same day. That's the judgment. Finally, the hope. The hope. You may have noticed it. It's interspersed in the text. There's these brief notices of what's happening in another family, not Eli's family. Right? The text opens in verse 11 by telling us that Elkanah's family went home and the boy, that's Samuel, ministered to the Lord under Eli the priest. That's how the text opens. And then down about six or seven verses, in verse 17, it says, Samuel was ministering to the Lord. This is very artfully done, right? These verses frame, they bracket the account of the sacrificial abuses of Eli's sons. So the reader picks up, oh, there's a different kind of son already beginning a different kind of ministry. This is our encouragement. Right? That silently, behind the scenes, without any drama, Yahweh is providing a future in the midst of the dark corruption of the church. And we're told at the end of verse 18 that the boy Samuel was wearing an ephah, like a tunic or an apron. Samuel's a Levite. He's, he's not a descendant of Aaron. And so strictly speaking, he's not a priest, but he's going to do a bunch of priestly things because Israel's in transition. And then we get this, frankly, adorable and touching remark that every year his mother, Hannah, made a little robe for him, sewed a robe and took it to him. She went up to the annual sacrifice and she's already clothed him with her love and with her prayers and with her prophetic gifts. And now she clothes him with the labors of her hands. Decades, it seems, of robes for her Nazarite son, whom she rarely sees. Now, I spoke last week of just how extraordinary Hannah is. But you see it even here in this one little detail in the text. And you know, it's funny. Robes play a big part in 1 and 2 Samuel. Later, a robe that Samuel is wearing is torn by Saul. And Samuel turns to him and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. One wonders, did Hannah knit that robe? Anyway, on these yearly visits, Eli, who I said, has some fine qualities. He would bless them and he would pray. For the Lord to give her children, to take the place of the one she donated to the Lord. Eli shows kindness to Hannah. People are complicated. (laughs) We'll see this in the narrative. 
And the Lord was gracious. Hannah had sons and daughters. And so there's this other counterpoint. God is blessing the remnant. Just the ordinary, faithful families walking in the covenant, even as he's bringing judgment on the house of Eli and out of the priesthood. Right? Out of the ashes of the corrupt church, the future emerges. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And then we get some more references to Samuel and the way that the narrator has done it. They bracket again. They bracket the account of the moral corruption of Eli's sons. Previously, they bracketed the account of the sacrificial corruption. Then they bracket the account of the moral corruption. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And verse 26, Samuel is said to be growing in favor and stature with God and man. Surely that should echo in your ears, right? Those are the very words used of the young Jesus when he was a boy at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And so a careful observer would start to think, maybe this boy is the king, the savior of Israel. Who knows? Maybe he's the Messiah. In the midst of this corruption, this young boy is not only getting bigger, he is getting bigger, but he's getting better. He's getting wiser. He's growing in grace and graciousness. He grows vertically with God, horizontally with people. All parents of young children should want this, right, as they grow. You want them to grow socially, you want them to grow spiritually. If you're a young child, a young person in this church, I want you to listen to me now. Because I'm going to talk directly to you. These are difficult times that you live in, in the church and in the world. There are real difficulties and challenges that will oppose the gospel. But you are the future of the church, right? You have an example in this young boy, Samuel. Notice, Samuel ministered to the Lord. Yes, Eli was there and was corrupt. But it didn't stop Samuel from sitting in the presence of the Lord and ministering to the Lord. You can grow in the grace of God and in favor with God and men and no corruption in the church and no corruption in the world can stop that. The church needs you and will need you. So there is hope, right? It's in the shadows. It's among these nondescript faithful And it's also on the lips of the prophet who says in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what's in my heart and my mind. So there's going to be Eli's priestly lineage laid aside, but there'll be a new faithful priestly lineage. I want to conclude then with a word about judgment and a word about hope. First judgment. Despite the fact that many Christians are obsessed with the project, we are not, for the time being anyway, the judges of the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, this is a very important text, I think. He says to the church in Corinth, right, who was sitting in a culturally corrupt situation much worse than ours. 
He says to the church in Corinth, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Right? There are Christians I talk to who I think that's their only business. Paul says, what business of that is mine? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Right? We need to be people who think of our own sins and our own community sins as big and think of the sins of everybody else outside as small and leave them to the hands of God. We tend to have this reversed, right? We think, man, the sin out there is just awful. Why don't we talk about it for hours? We're focused on our own purification or purification of the community. Yes, we witness to the church. We proclaim the gospel. But as Paul said, it is not our business to be their judges. Judgment begins in this text, as it always does, with the church. Right? The Apostle Peter says, Now is the time for judgment to begin with God's household. Right? The final judgment is always breaking into the church's life. And Peter says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey? In in our text, Israel stands under judgment. Her ministry, her priesthood, her worship, her national life is marred by corruption. God is always sifting and refining and judging his church. You know where you see this most clearly, right? Right? The seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation make this clear. That the church needs to be purified or to die. That churches have their lampstands taken away, right? We could go down and list the lampstands that have been taken away in the 20th century. Coming through this judgment is not trivial, beloved. It is hard, right? Peter's text goes on to say, if it is hard or if scarcely the righteous can be saved, what will become of the ungodly or the sinner? One should not be presumptuous. There's no person and there's no past, there's no heritage which can secure the church's future. Today is the day of salvation. Which means that today is also the day of judgment for the church. And you know, as the prophets of Israel say, who can stand when God arises to judge? What becomes then of our corruption and our greed and our half-hearted, half-baked worship? Our honoring of our families above God, our false compassion, our gutless indulgences with our children, all our disordered desires... If the Lord were to mark iniquities, no one, the psalmist says, would stand. And that brings me to hope. As I mentioned, we see it sewn into the seams of this passage. And here I want you to hear me clearly, because I don't don't want us to leave on the note of judgment. I want us to leave on the note that the God who judges his household is the one who has promised to build his church such that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. For you and for the church as a community, judgment is always unto salvation. 
Right? That work is already afoot right, in the presence and in the ministry of Samuel in these days of Israel's darkness. God has his eye on. Right? Again, I want the children to remember what I said. At this point, God has his eyes on, and God is forming and shaping one young boy. You know, in the final days of Israel's darkness, at the time of its deepest corruption, that same God, by the same providence, uses the same words because he had his eyes on one little boy named Jesus, who was growing in favor with God and man. Notice we have in our text a prophet. We have the promise of a faithful priest. And we have the promise of the anointed king, whom Hannah had already referred to. And so we can see, dimly, the shadows pointing to our Lord. Even here, 1 Samuel 2. What's the text about? The text is about Jesus. Because all scripture speaks of Jesus Christ, and because Jesus Christ speaks in all scripture. He's the subject of scripture. He lives in the text and through the text. He's the prophet. He's the word of God and the word that God speaks. He's the faithful and everlasting priest who would succeed all the weak and frail and broken Levitical priests, whether they're from Levi's line or not. Right? He will offer up and be that holy sacrifice on the altar of the cross. His intercession will be incense offered in the heavenly tabernacle. He shall bear your burdens on his heart there, symbolized by that priestly ephod. And he's the anointed one, the greater David, the king of Israel and all the earth. Right? This is why, this one, our Lord Jesus Christ, is why there is certainty in the triumph of God's purposes even in these hours. Remember, Israel will fail completely. This is the beginning of their failures. They're just getting warmed up. Right? What will happen is Israel will be evicted in toto from the land and sent into exile. But God's purposes will triumph. Notice this in the text. It starts in verse 35. I will raise up. I will firmly establish, right? These I wills point to the bigger I will of our gospel lesson. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How can that be? It's because this one, prophet, priest, and king, has borne our judgment, borne our corruption, borne our false worship, Born our immorality, our unbelief, our complacency, our smug self-righteousness, our idolatrous breaking of the first commandment in honoring people and things above God. All born away that you might stand in the time of judgment. Judgment which begins at the house of God, and as such, he has become our hope. 
Hope for us is always in and through and on the other side of that judgment, or else hope is a fiction. This is real hope. We do not believe in sunny optimism. We believe in biblical hope, and that biblical hope requires death and resurrection out of death. So trust this one to whom the text points. Trust him in your darkness, your confusion, and know that his word is not bound or chained. It intervenes as it intervened here. It's already at work assuring your future in his triumphant purpose. When we read this text, we know we need a true prophet. We need a holy priest. We need a mighty king to turn our judgment ordeal into a living hope. And we have that in Jesus Christ. Honor him. For those who honor him, he will honor. Amen.